Lord Jesus, uh, you came and you told us that you are the bread of life and that our souls need to be fed by you. And you said that the word of God is like bread, that we need to even have any sort of spiritual well-being and spiritual life within us. So we come before you now and, and we confess that apart from you, we, we have no spiritual life and, and we need you to feed us by your word now. Would you do that? Would you make these words come to life and would you impress them upon our hearts to more closely follow, more uh, fervently worship and uh, more joyously serve you in everything that we do as your disciples? We pray this all in your name, the name of King Jesus. Amen. Have you guys ever received a text message and realized that when you receive this text message, the person who was sending it was using terms and phrases that you do not know and they were addressing an issue that you weren't quite sure that you understood. Has anybody found themselves in that position? Uh, especially if you look at like all the acronyms that people use in text messages. I'm way behind the times on this. So, you know, one text that I got recently, I sent somebody this meme, which I just figured out what a meme is, but they wrote back, I totes ROTFL'd when I saw that meme. Anybody know what that means? It means I totally rolled on the floor laughing when I saw that picture with a caption underneath it. Or you text another person, I write, hey, that abs game was awesome last night. And they respond to me, IKR, stuff was cray cray. <laughs> what is that? I don't know what that means. Another text, actually my brother and I do this all the time. We, we test back and forth with just acronyms. And he sent one the other day that said, TTYLD, BTW, TY4, TTXT, greater than sign three. Anybody? Translation? Oh, you know that one. Okay, yeah. So this one is, talk to you later, Daniel. By the way, thank you for the text message, heart. Okay? Anybody received one of those? No? I'm the only one, I guess. Then <laughs> One more text I saw. This one isn't one that came to me, but my wife and I, we look up funny texts that get misunderstood. And this is a mom writing to her son. And she writes, Aunt Betty passed away last night, LOL. And... The son writes back, Mom, how is that funny? <laughs> the mom said, it's not funny at all, son. Mom, LOL means laugh out loud. Mom responds, oh, no, I sent that to everyone. I thought it meant lots of love. <laughs> so obvious miscommunication, right? <laughs> if, you read, if you read Romans chapter 14 and... You read it for a first time and, and you never really know the context of what's going on. That's what it can kind of seem like. There's a lot of terms being used, phrases that you don't quite know, and it's addressing this issue that you're not sure you really understand. So as to give us a framework of understanding Romans 14 before we dive right in, I think a modern exam example can kind of frame uh, this section for us before we dive in. Christianity Today, in their March issue, recently just had... Uh, extensive coverage on this new phenomenon that's taking place in the church today, and it's taking hold in evangelical churches especially, and they have a term for it. It's called deconstruction. And deconstruction is this phenomenon taking hold, and it means uh, essentially, or, or sorry, it, it's most common among millennials and Gen Z evangelical Christians, and this is what they write about deconstruction. They say, for some people, deconstructing faith means losing their faith altogether becoming atheists, agnostics, or spiritual but not religious. For others, deconstructing means believing in Jesus but struggling with how their religious institutions have failed them. 
But then they go on to say, but there's a third category, and they say this applies to anybody who's deconstructing. There's this third category that's common to everyone, and that's that deconstructing is an attempt to keep an ongoing commitment to Orthodox Christianity, but without the cultural baggage associated with the label evangelicalism. And I think one lady put it well. She was interviewed throughout the uh, pieces in Christianity Today. Her name was Kristen Sanders. And she wrote, those who identify as actively deconstructing their faith are in a difficult struggle to correct or deepen naive Christian belief. They're horrified by the idolatries of passive cultural Christianity. Those who are tired of seeing their churches divided by the same political and cultural tumults ripping through almost every facet of American life. They want to keep their faith, but feel they have reached the point of exhaustion with the cultural and political issues that have become the primary mark of what it means to be an evangelical. And so now that's a mouthful, but really what Sanders is just saying in that is, is pretty simple. She's saying a whole generation of younger Christians, usually 35 and younger in the United States, want to be faithful, they want to be devout Christians, but they also want to remove some of the cultural assumptions that are associated with being a Christian or being an evangelical in American culture. Maybe a better way to put it is what they're wrestling with is this problem of not allowing secondary issues, secondary cultural issues, to become the primary markers of their faith. Instead, they want to make the primary teachings of Christianity primary, and they want to allow the secondary cultural opinions to remain secondary. And this is a really important point, because although a handful of younger Christians are doing this thing called deconstruction, and they have this savvy term for it, like deconstruction. This is actually not a new problem. It's definitely not a new issue that the church is facing today. In fact, Christians have been trying to navigate this question, the question of what are secondary issues, opinions, and cultural preferences, and what are primary doctrines and teachings of the Bible? It's always been a problem within Christianity. Richard Bauckham, he's a New Testament professor, he's an author, he wrote that Christianity is the most globally distributed religion, and it shows more cultural flexibility than any other religion or philosophy. And what that has the power to do is unite people across different cultural barriers that otherwise people wouldn't be able to uh, be a part of. And this is a really great strength, Bauckham says, but what it does mean is that Christianity will always face this problem. And it's this problem of figuring out what are the secondary issues, what are opinions, what are mere preferences of our culture, and what are the primary things that we have to believe and hold tight to as followers of Jesus. So you think of a bullseye, right, or a target. That's kind of how you can think of this. There's the bullseye of Christian belief. These are primary teachings of the Bible that the Bible says explicitly and clearly, and they're always true no matter when you live, no matter where you live, no matter how you live. But then there are the secondary issues. That's the second outer ring. And these are things that, you know, are matters of opinion. They're secondary. They're not always clear in the Bible. There's some gray area in there, and they usually take wisdom to navigate. And what Bauckham and others and Christianity to Today and all these cultural pundits are saying is we're facing this crisis in American culture where the second uh, circle is trying to force its way into the primary circle and Christians have to figure out how do we navigate this problem? How do we keep the primary things primary and the second, second things secondary? 
And as I said, keep that framework in mind because that'll help you understand Romans 14, especially the opening verses of Romans 14. So if you have a Bible, take out your Bible and flip to Romans chapter 14 because Paul is navigating a similar problem in the church in Rome. See, Christ's love, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead had been proclaimed throughout the uh, Greco-Roman world. And people from diverse backgrounds were coming into the church. And what you usually saw was you had those in churches who came from a culture that was predominantly religiously and culturally Jewish. And even within Judaism, there were different sects within Judaism like Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes, and they were all coming into the church. And then you had those who were born outside of Judaism Uh, Judaism. These were called Gentiles. And these Gentiles came from various contingencies as well. They were Greeks, Scythians, and God-fearers. These were people who believed in the God of the Old Testament, but were not ethnically Jewish. And all of these people of diverse mixes, they're coming together. And as they're committed to Jesus, they have to navigate this very problem that we face today of what are these cultural things that we're bringing into the church that we have to now wrestle with as members of Jesus' church, as members of his body? And how do we make the primary issues primary and the secondary issues secondary? That's the context of what Paul is writing in. And so what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at specifically what was the problem then? What was the problem in the Roman church that Paul's addressing? Then after we've kind of drilled down into that, we're going to then look at what the problem is today. Because we do face similar problems today. And then there's going to be a two-part series. We're going to look at this mostly next week. But this, this week we're going to look at one of the solutions that Paul says always applies. Whether it's then or today. Here's what the solution is always as the church who are followers of Jesus. So what was the problem then? If you pick up your Bibles, you look at Romans chapter 14. And beginning in verse 1, you can see that there are a lot of layers to the problem that's going on in Romans. But just like us... Paul is writing to this church in Rome around the year 57 AD, and there's this quarrel in the church, a conflict in the church, and it's about opinions and cultural issues. And look at verse 1. It says that there are two groups of people. In verse 1, you see Paul begins there by talking about those who are, quote, weak in faith. Do you see that? There are those who are weak in faith, and they're involved in a quarrel over opinions with those who Paul later goes on to describe as those who are strong in faith. And by those terms, weak and strong, Paul is not saying, hey, those who are weak in faith somehow have less faith in Jesus. He's not saying that there's somehow a lesser form of spirituality in these people or that they're more likely to be overcome by temptation. That's not what Paul means. Now, when Paul's talking about those who are weak in faith, he's talking about an issue of freedom. He's talking about an issue of freedom. A person who is weak in faith, according to Paul, is a person who has not fully grasped the freedom that they have in Jesus, and they have not grasped the freedom that they have in the gospel that Jesus has accomplished. So though those who are weak in faith, we can see that this problem is very similar to anybody who is coming out of a world religion or a worldly philosophy in coming into Christianity. This problem of weakness of faith always happens because all religions of the world essentially say say the same thing. They're all based on law. And coming out of a law-based system of do this, don't do that, and if you 
do this enough and you don't do that at all, then God will accept you. That's what all religions of the world say. All religions of the world say, in other words, you accumulate a good legal record before God, you present that legal record before God, and he either approves you and accepts you or he rejects you and denies you. That's what all world religions say. And that's what all philosophies of this world are based on. And in a lot of ways, too, this doesn't even have to be a religious thing. A lot of secular culture today believes these very things as well, don't they? I looked up a statistic recently about Americans in uh, the year 2019. 83% of Americans said that they believe essentially good people will go to heaven. 83% of Americans said essentially good people will go to heaven. And what makes a person good in the eyes of God is doing certain things like paying your taxes, giving to good charities, advocating for human rights, taking part in social justice causes, and being kind to friends and colleagues. And you see there, right, assumed in that, assumed even in secularism, is this idea that at the end of the day, we do good things we do certain things and don't do certain things. And if we do those well enough, we can present a legal record to God and he will accept us. So religion and secularism are really bedfellows, aren't they? Christianity says something different. Christianity, the gospel, says that Jesus has accumulated a good record. Jesus has fulfilled all of God's legal demands. Not only did he perfectly keep the Ten Commandments of God, he also died the death and the penalty for all of our legal infractions against God. And because Jesus has accumulated this good record, he gives that perfect legal record to us freely as a gift of grace, and we simply receive it by faith. So you can see there's a world of difference, right, between the freedom that we have in Jesus and legal religion and legal secularism that says you do good and God accepts you. Do you see the difference there? Paul actually highlights this freedom that we have in Jesus in Romans chapter 8. A lot of you have probably even, you know, memorized these verses in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. And he says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That is the freedom we have in Jesus, that no law-based system can make us righteous or make us good in God's sight. Martin Luther, I think, said it well. Martin Luther said, A Christian man is most free, subject to nothing and no one. That's the freedom we have in Jesus. We are subject to no one and subject to no thing. We are completely free from any law-based system of acceptance with God in Jesus. So back to Paul here. When Paul is talking about those who are weak in faith, he's referring to a group that's within the Roman church, and they're not fully grasping this freedom that they have in Jesus because of his grace. And because of that, What's going on is remnants of their old law and legal-based religious system is still clinging to their hearts and clinging to their conscience. Does anybody here have a kid or did you play hockey growing up? Anybody here? I know we got one there, a few other people. Well, if you know anything about hockey players, their pads smell atrocious. 
Even if you just go into a hockey arena, you can smell the fumes of sweat and just the stink of hockey players. And I used to be a goalie growing up. And after the season, you would try everything that you could to get the remnants of that smell out of your pads. So you would wash them, you'd rub them with soap and water, you'd air them out, and it would take 14, 15, 16 different washes to get that remnant and stench of hockey player out of the pads. And even if you did that, it wasn't a guarantee. The next time you strapped up and put those pads on, you would probably smell last year's smell just a little bit. That remnant, that smell, is very similar to what's going on with those who are weak in faith in Rome. This remnant of law-based spirituality, though they believe in Jesus, is still clinging to those people who are weak in faith. They don't grasp the freedom that they have in Jesus. So you see that in verse 1, don't you? That on the surface, this first layer of what's going on in Rome, you see on the surface that there's this quarrel going on between those who are strong and those who are weak. Then you go one layer deeper. And you see exactly what it is that they're quarreling over, that they're quarreling over opinions. So verse 1, you see the quarrel kind of defined there, that it's between the strong and the weak. And then in verse 2, we see kind of the specifics of what this debate is over. And there we're told, Paul writes, one person believes he may eat anything. This is verse 2. And that person who thought that they could eat anything, that's who Paul describes as the strong person. So one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. He goes on in verse 5 to say that there's another issue at stake here. One person esteems one day better than another, and that's the weak person, while another esteems all days alike. So here's what Paul's saying here. He's drilling into the specifics of this debate. He's saying, hey, the weak in faith, they have these deeply held, really ingrained, conscientious opinions about not eating certain kinds of food, abstaining from certain kinds of food, because they think, hey, in order to follow Jesus properly, we have to follow all the ceremonial dietary laws that God outlined in the Old Testament. Anybody read the book of Leviticus? (laughs) This is everywhere. So you read the book of Leviticus. It's Leviticus chapter 11. God had these certain ceremonial laws about what you could and could not eat. Some foods were called clean and you could eat them. Some foods were called unclean and you could not eat them. And some of the unclean ones were things like pig and lobster and vultures and all other kinds of animals. But they had these dietary opinions about still observing these Old Testament ceremonial laws. That's what the weak in faith were struggling with. And on top of that, those who are weak in faith also had these deeply held convictions and opinions that followers of Jesus should adhere to the various ceremonial festivals as well. And you see those in Leviticus chapter 23. In Leviticus chapter 23, there's these observances that the people of Israel had to keep, the Passover, Yom Kippur, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Firstfruits, the Feast of Weeks, all of these religious festivals that were part and parcel of what it meant to follow Yahweh in the Old Testament. And again... The reason Paul refers to this group as weak in faith is because they have not yet grasped something key and something essential about Jesus. They didn't realize that they were free from those ceremonial Old Testament laws because Jesus had perfectly fulfilled them. Jesus had perfectly lived them out and they were no longer binding on people. In fact, 
Paul writes about this elsewhere uh, because this wasn't just an issue in the church in Rome. This was one of the central issues of the New Testament church. They battled it in Corinth where there was a church. They battled it in Colossae where there was a church. And Paul, to his letter to the church in Colossae, this is in Colossians, he writes there, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You see what he's saying there, right? Days and dietary laws. This was a problem everywhere. And then he goes on. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See, Jesus is the substance of all of those laws in the Old Testament. Jesus is the one that all of those Old Testament laws were pointing toward. And when Jesus came, he came and fulfilled all those laws perfectly. So what Paul is saying is, hey, do you want to obey God? Do you want to sincerely follow him in your life? Then follow Jesus, the substance of all those laws. Those things are a shadow. Jesus is the substance. Follow him, and you are free from those ceremonial commands. Jesus has set us free. Now, those things were which once, once were law are now opinions. You are free to do them. You're free not to do them. You're no better if you do them. You are no worse off if you don't do them. So that was the quarrel. That was the debate. Everybody following? So you have the first layer, this quarrel between the strong and the weak. The second layer, which you get into the specifics, the stronger saying, Jesus has set us free. Bring on the barbecue. And you have the weak who are saying, no, I just, I can't do that. I can't do that yet. It it doesn't seem right. But Paul goes one layer deeper. And Paul says, here's really the root of this problem that's going on in Rome. And you see this in verse 3. Remember Paul in verse 1 had said that our attitude should be one of welcoming one another in the faith. That strong and weak are to welcome one another, but you see in verse 3 that that isn't happening. In fact, this is a debate that actually went back some 10 years before Paul was writing. In the year 49 AD, there was an emperor of the Roman Empire, and this debate was going on in Rome to such an extent that Claudius, who was the Roman emperor at the time, actually expelled all Jewish Christians from Rome for a time because this debate had gotten so contentious that he had to actually push it out of the city in order that he could bring some semblance of peace. And you can see that there's really a root attitude problem between the strong and the weak. And you can see that beginning in verse 2. Paul says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the other person only eats vegetables. And then he says, let not the one who eats, that's the weak or the strong person, despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains, that's the weak person, pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So here's the strong. And they're saying, we really despise those weak people. There's this issue and this attitude of contempt that's rising up in their heart. They're saying things like, oh my goodness, why are you being so scrupulous about your faith? They're saying things like, why are you worried about such tedious little things like eating blood or eating lobster or eating a vulture? I don't know why anybody would eat a vulture anyway, but you seem so graceless, so legalistic. Like, why don't you just get it? We're free in Jesus. Don't you get grace? You kind of heard people with that same mentality. Paul's saying that 
attitude of despising a weak person because you think, man, you're just being so ridiculous. This was prevalent not only in the Church of Rome, but it was prevalent throughout the Roman Greco world. And you can imagine, right, that resentment toward weak people could really boil over to say things like, you know, I, I never, ever get to do what I want around those people, those weak Christians that don't understand grace. You know, I can't go to Red Lobster anymore because they're just going to be offended. All I want to eat is the butter rolls, but they say if, even if I'm next to lobster, I can't even have it. Why should I forfeit Red Lobster and pulled pork just because that person doesn't understand grace? They don't understand the Bible. Don't these people understand who Jesus is? That's the strong, and they're despising the weak. The weak, though, their attitude's no better. The weak, they have an attitude of self-righteousness, this air of superiority about them, and they judge the strong person. They say things like, they aren't really committed to Jesus. They aren't really committed. They're so loosey-goosey. They don't take the Bible seriously enough. Those people don't understand sacrifice and commitment like we understand sacrifice and commitment. And this attitude of self-righteousness, you can see how that can subtly take a turn, right? How that attitude of self-righteousness can start to take the opinions of the Bible or the opinions of culture, and it can start to really force its way in to be central and primary issues where people start drawing the lines where the Bible never draws them. Jesus, in fact, faced this problem regularly. There was a group of people that Paul was actually a part of. Paul understood this better than anybody else. Paul was known as a Pharisee. These were people who were very scrupulous about following Old Testament laws, and they had gotten so scrupulous about following these laws that they started drawing the lines even further than God drew them. So God said, hey, some foods are clean, some foods are unclean. Well, they said, well, you know, you never know if a a certain food is truly clean. So what we'll do is we'll wash our hands a certain way ceremonially. And that'll make sure that even if, you know, we unintentionally eat an unclean food by our washing, we'll, we'll make it clean. And these scribes and these Pharisees started doing this and they came and approached Jesus one day and said, hey, we noticed that your disciples, they don't wash the way that they're supposed to wash ceremonially before they eat their food. Why don't you do something about that? And Jesus says, you know what? Isaiah the prophet who wrote some 700 years before you, he actually prophesied of you guys. And he said, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, they are taking things that are purely cultural, purely made up, which may have started out as wise and well-intentioned, and they've made them the doctrines of God. They've put them in the issue of a primary importance, and what they've done is they've actually drawn the lines where God does not draw them. So the strong They have this disdain and contempt and this resentfulness toward the weak. You have the weak who have this attitude of self-righteousness and judgment. And if that's left unchecked, it leads to hypocrisy. And Paul is saying, this is the issue. This is the issue that can literally tear a church apart at the seams. It can take what Jesus has brought together, his family, his body, and it can rip it apart as fast as he brought it together. So thanks for your patience as we look at kind of, hey, that was the problem then. 
And this actually does have a lot of relevance now. And so as we looked at the problem then, we're going to see, here's how this parallels now into problems that we face today. Now understand this. In Rome, those who were weak in faith, they were coming primarily out of a Jewish context. If you were going to become a Christian, it's most likely that you came out of Judaism into Christianity. And for that reason, a lot of the remnants that they brought in were issues around ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. Today, a lot of people who are coming to Christianity aren't coming from Judaism necessarily. So a lot of people don't come into the church today and they don't say, oh man, you know what, should I take the bacon bits off of my Cobb salad? They're not thinking that. That's not the issue that they struggle with. Instead, the issues that we struggle with take on much more of a cultural flavor. I'll just give a personal example. When I kind of gave my life over to Christ in college, I came really from a Roman Catholic background. If you know my story, there's a little bit more nuance to that, but I came primarily out of a Roman Catholic background. And this is an appropriate time to think about this because most Roman Catholics during this time of year are celebrating the, the season of Lent. And Lent is a time specifically focused on giving up certain things or uh, giving up sort of comforts that we have in our day-to-day -day life. So, you know, when I did this, I would give up soda for 40 days or I'd give up an hour of sleep every morning for 40 days or I'd give up looking in a mirror every once in a while. Um, and on top of that, outside of these voluntary things that you would deprive yourself of, there were also things you had to do, like you could not eat meat on Fridays. Now, coming out of Catholicism, it took me a while to fully grasp the freedom that I had in Jesus. When Lent came around, remnants of the mentality that said, I have to practice Lent. I'm not a good Christian if I don't practice Lent. What if I don't sacrifice Coca-Cola these 40 days? Will God be displeased at me? That was still a remnant that I had on my conscience. And now, to be sure, is sacrificing certain first world luxuries a good thing for our faith? Is fasting a good thing for our faith? Is it sometimes even wise and beneficial to spend 40 days of intentional self-sacrifice and repentance? Absolutely. Those are good things to do at times. But when you begin to think, as I did, that you have to do that, that you ought to do that, and that true Christians and committed Christians are the ones who do not eat meat on certain days for 40 days, then what you've done is you've crossed the line that Jesus has drawn, the line that says you are free. And you've actually crossed the line back into a level of bondage that Jesus says, hey, you don't have to live there anymore. You are completely free in Christ. No list of do and don'ts will commend you to Jesus. Let me give you one more example. This is just one I personally struggled with. In the Roman Catholic Church, they celebrate the church calendar. So, you know, there would be certain days that were held as more holy than other days. There were things like Palm Sunday. There were things like Maundy Thursday, Epiphany Sunday, Ascension Sunday, Pentecost. And again, to be sure, is celebrating Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, a good thing? Absolutely. Can it be beneficial to our faith? Absolutely. But you have to realize as much as we love things like Palm Sunday and Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, you have to realize those things are never, ever commanded to be recognized and to be set aside in the Bible. They are good things to do. You can use them with wisdom. 
Sometimes it might be good to celebrate them, but they are never commanded in the Bible and you are no more spiritual for observing them. You are free in Jesus from any sort of legal commands. And one you know, Scottish pastor, he put this well. He said, these, these opinions have such an ability to rip us apart. You can even imagine, you can almost read them into the New Testament. You know how Jesus healed people who were blind or they were disabled at birth? He, he gives up this fanciful story. Jesus didn't always heal people of blindness in the same way. There's one instance of where Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, you know, he tries to heal Jesus or this guy's eyes and it doesn't work exactly the first time. He opens his eyes and says, I see trees walking around. So Jesus takes mud on the ground and he spits on the guy. Then he takes the mud, rub, rubs it on his eyes, and then it comes off and he can finally see. Well, another guy, Jesus just says, be healed of your blindness, and all of a sudden he can see. And you can imagine these two men coming together and saying, wow, Jesus, he healed you of your blindness? How amazing is that? How did he do it for you? Oh, well, it was pretty amazing. You know, he took mud and he, he squished it on my eyes, and then he, he moved it from my eyes, and all of a sudden he could see. And the other guy looks at him and is like, wait, what? Are you serious? That's not how it's done. No, Jesus just has to speak to you and then you're healed. You must not be a real Jesus follower. You must not be a real Christian. And what happens is you have the first two denominations, right? The Muddites and the anti-Muddites. <laughs> we can do that though, can't we? We can take things that are completely secondary and make them the essential thing. And the list of this is extensive. The list of opinions and secondary issues that take the territory of primary teachings of the Bible. Some of these are very trivial, and, and these are true stories. I, I recently met a person who, in good conscience, said they couldn't go to a church because the people in that church wore blue jeans instead of slacks. They felt that it was irreverent to go before God wearing anything but slacks, and for that reason they said, hey, in good conscience, this is a make-it-or-break-it issue. I can't worship at that place anymore. This happened a long time ago. Most of you will not remember this. This happened so long ago. But there was this time when people had to wear masks in public spaces. And this became a serious division in the church. Some people said, I cannot in good conscience worship at a place that will make me wear a mask. And people on the other side would say, I can't in good conscience worship at a place that will not wear masks. And it divided Christ's body. Another example today is political parties. Some people make political party the primary issue of the faith. And it's not uncommon to read blogs of Christians that say you have to vote this way or you have to vote that way. In fact, this is one prominent church leader. I'm not going to mention his name, but here are two direct quotes from this leader. The first in 2016 where he said, Donald Trump is a model of everything that is destructive in morality in our culture. Fast forward to 2020, this same person said, any true believer in Jesus will back Donald Trump in 2020. So which one is it? What that highlights, by the way, is just the danger of taking something that's an opinion and elevating it to the realm of a primary issue, so much so that it can rip apart the body of Jesus that he has brought together. But maybe the most common opinion that gets treated as kind of a primary issue today is the issue of alcohol. You think in the church, there's contentious debates about alcohol. You know, the Bible, when it mentions alcohol, it's always treated as a gift of God. The Bible mentions that Jesus drank wine. That's Matthew 15, 11 and Luke chapter 7, verses 33 through 35. Jesus turned one time water into wine. That was John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. 
Paul encouraged Timothy, who was another pastor, to take wine just instead of water in order to heal a stomach ailment that he had. The book of Proverbs, a book of wisdom, speaks about wine as a blessing from God that overflows out of vats into God's people. That's Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Heaven. Heaven is described in Isaiah chapter 25 as a banquet and a feast where wonderfully aged wine will be shared by all people who walk into Jesus' kingdom. Jesus, even during the Lord's Supper, his last supper that he had with people, gave communion wine as a way to represent his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And now many will say, and they'll say this rightly, by the way, that the Bible condemns drunkenness. And it does. The Bible condemns all form of drunkenness. And alcohol also has a profound power, you see this throughout the Bible as well, to destroy lives, to destroy people's homes if it is not used responsibly. And I agree with all of those points. In fact, I come from a family that really struggles with alcoholism. I've seen how it can absolutely destroy individuals and families. I've actually even seen one of my good friends, his name was Chase Miller, I've shared this before, but at 16, he entered a car with a, drunk, uh, a man who was drunk, and he lost his life at the age of 16. So many will say, hey, because alcohol is so destructive and so prone to abuse, Christians should just simply not partake of it. We should avoid it. It hurts our witness. It hurts our witness to the community. And they view it as a make or break issue, and it's treated of primary importance. And again, I deeply sympathize with that. I really do. I really do. But we do have to be careful not to make hard and fast rules just because a gift of God can be abused. Can alcohol lead to drunkenness? Can it be abused? Can it tear apart families? Absolutely. In fact, I confess that I have abused alcohol at times. I know it's hard to believe, right? But that can be said of almost any good gift that God gives us. God gives us the gift of money. And money can lead to greed and envy and covetousness and lead to people doing things in otherwise in their right mind they would never think of doing. But we do not say as Christians, you know what, Christians cannot make money. We never say that. Or sex. Sex is another prime example. This is a good gift given by God. And sex can be abused in so many ways, even in marriage, but nobody, no Christian, at least I've never heard of any Christian, say Christians cannot have sex. In fact, I would argue that sex and money are equally destructive as alcohol when it comes to families and individuals. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful Because the fact of the matter is the Bible does not prohibit the use of alcohol. So we have to be reminded over and over. Do we have to be wise with it? Absolutely. Do we have to avoid certain uses of it? Absolutely. But as Christians, we're free to enjoy it as a gift of God responsibly, just as we enjoy all other gifts of God. So even though you can see, right, Paul Seems like he's talking about a problem then that has no relevance toward us today. He's actually talking about something toward us that is very relevant now. So we've seen both problems. So what's the solution? We're going to dive into this further next week, but I'm just going to focus on one point extensively this morning. Paul says the solution, it's very clear. He says it in verse 1, verse 3, and then Romans chapter 15, verse 7. He says the solution is that we are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. So notice, beginning in verse 1, 
Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the other weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. And then to close out this entire section, Romans 15, verse 7, Paul writes, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. See, we often can't tolerate one another because of certain opinions or cultural preferences another person holds, whether it be on alcohol, party affiliation, masking, opinions about homeschooling, private schooling, or public schooling, dating versus courting, tobacco use. All of these opinions can divide Christ's body, that can divide the church and rip them apart. We often have little tolerance for those who disagree with us. But when we do that, what we're saying is we cannot tolerate someone that God has actually accepted. We can't have in our family the one that Jesus has said is part of our family. Maybe the most sad instance of this in all of history, of how opinions can just completely rip apart the unity of a church, actually happened in our own backyard. It happened in the United States of America. See, some couple hundred of years ago, this opinion started to form, even among Christians, that African Americans were an inferior race of people. That African Americans were not as superior or good as white people. And for that, all of a sudden these weird opinions started forming that, you know, even the Bible, which it mentions repeatedly that all humanity is created in the image of God, even though it mentions repeatedly that all humans are descendant of one ancestor, Adam, even though all of humanity, every nation, was given this problem or this uh, promise through Abraham that they would be blessed in Jesus Christ. And even though when God gave his people a vision of heaven and described it as this, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from every nation, all peoples and languages were standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Even though that was the picture that the Bible gave repeatedly, opinions about a person's race started taking a primary spot. And for that reason, the church was literally ripped in half. Where today, you still have what is the black church, and what is de facto the white church. You can see how an opinion, a mere opinion and cultural baggage can absolutely rip apart what Jesus, by his blood, the blood of the lamb, was working so hard to bring together. So Paul's encouragement is deeply relevant deeply relevant for any person who sincerely wants to follow Jesus today. He encourages us, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That is the solution always, that opinions, though they can divide, if we keep Christ, the lamb who shed his blood to bring people of different opinions, different cultures, different tribes, different preferences together if God can do that and he can welcome us if we keep the lamb in our focus the lamb who shed his blood to bring us in friends we will have a unity 
that will transcend any opinions or differences that we have. Let me ask you this. What is most important in our culture? That we are right, that we are on the right side of every cultural opinion that could possibly divide us, or could it be a better witness to our culture that they would look at the church and they would see, look how those people are able to remain united when everyone else is becoming divided. Friends, I can't think of a more relevant, a more relevant issue pressing on us who follow the Lamb of God who shed his blood for us. We're going to look at what this looks like a little bit more next week of how we actually maintain this unity. Paul gets into specifics, but until that time, you're just going to have to wait. You can binge watch these, by the way, on YouTube. So <laughs> look forward to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. And we're just reminded as what the Apostle John said when he looked into heaven, that one day a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, from all tribes and peoples and languages and nations, they'll stand before your throne and before the Lamb of God, Jesus himself. We will be clothed in white robes with palm branches, branches of peace in our hand. And we'll cry out with one loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God, oh, we long for that day. We long for that day when our opinions will fall to the wayside and we will come together with you, the, the God who sent your son to be the Lamb who would shed his blood to welcome us into your family. God, give us hearts that long for that day and help us God, welcome one another to be patient and forbearing with one another, even though we're tempted to be pulled apart by cultural opinions and cultural issues. God, make us those kind of people as witnesses to your son, Jesus Christ, maintaining that unity that you earned by your sacrifice on the cross. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>